Good evening. Welcome. On Christmas Eve, my name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders of our church here. And as you well know, Christmas time is upon us. Some of you may awake tomorrow morning to a big pile of presents. And many of those presents will probably get broken or lost within a month. Others will keep dreaming of a white Christmas. The the snow will be here eventually, and, and it'll be beautiful, and then it'll get dirty and slushy, and the ugliness of it will last longer than the beauty of it did. We'll go sledding, having fun on the steepest, fastest hills we can find, and someone will get their face all scratched and their arm bent backwards and their shoulder bruised. I'll go home with a headache from the brightness, the activity, and the dehydration. This season of Christmas produces feelings of comfort, warmth, rest, and holiday cheer. And then we eat too much and feel gross. We don't get regular exercise. And when you get back to work after the holiday, you've got a pile of stuff demanding your attention. You'll probably get some good time with your family, seeing your dear loved ones, and all the old patterns of bickering, misunderstanding and painful words will find its way back into your communication. Some of you don't even have family to share this season with this year. The holiday brings memories of what you once had but have lost. Friends, you're not alone because the Christmas season reminds us annually of two things. Reminder number one of Christmas is that we want true comfort and lasting joy. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know, where the treetops glisten and children listen (laughs) to hear sleigh bells in the snow. We dream of these times, true comfort, lasting joy. Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe help to make the season bright. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight. What a bright time. It's the right time to rock the night away. Jingle bell time is a swell time to go gliding in a one-horse sleigh. Reminder number one of Christmas is that we want true and lasting comfort Enjoy. But reminder number two of Christmas is not far around the corner. And reminder number two is that we will never find our comfort and joy here. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. Grandma got run over by a reindeer walking home from our house Christmas Eve. I'll have a blue Christmas without you. I'll be so blue just thinking about you. Decorations of red on a green Christmas tree won't be the same, dear, if you're not here with me. You see, Christmas always brings us these two reminders. And the Bible has much to say about our Christmas hopes and dreams and where to find them. Because the Bible tells us a story about a world created by God, perfect and happy. A world where nothing ever broke, 
where relationships were satisfying and you never had to say goodbye to someone you cared about. But unfortunately, we screwed it up. We decided we wouldn't be happy with this world unless we got to make our own decisions, be our own gods. And so humanity fell into sin and rejection of God, the only complete good. And history is littered with people trying to regain their standing with God. As a result, good people, noble people, influential people, happy people, kind people, religious people, even evil people and hurtful people trying to make up for what was once lost to them. And so God decided to do something about it. You see, God made a promise. He made a Christmas promise. And his Christmas promise was this. It won't always be like this. You see, God decided not to take us out of this fallen, corrupt world. Instead, he chose to enter this world himself. The Bible's promise of Christmas is a promise that things won't always be like this. Because God came and walked among us, comfort and joy are now possible. It won't always be like this for three reasons that I want to give tonight. It won't be like this because Jesus is a true man. It won't always be like this because Jesus is the only God. And it won't always be like this because Jesus is the only Savior. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, if you'd like to follow along. If you, if you would like a Bible and you don't have one, you can raise your hand and, and Becca will bring one around. It's on page 523 of the church Bible. Page 523, Matthew chapter 1. The Christmas story begins this way. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And down to verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the Christmas story. First, I would like to show us that Jesus is a true man. Matthew tells us the story about Jesus, and the story begins with a family tree. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And for these first 17 verses, Matthew gives a long list of names where he traces the his history of Israel through the Old Testament. It begins with Abraham, the father of the nation, 
the one who received promises from God to be the source of blessing for the whole world. It continues through David, who was the first great and righteous king, the one who received promises from God that his descendants would reign forever. Many others are mentioned in this family tree, including a deceiver, a womanizer, two prostitutes, a wealthy landowner, child killers, false worshipers, power-hungry rulers, city builders, and a bunch of faces that we know absolutely nothing about. This list contains a lot of normal people, a lot of broken people, crazy people, selfish people, all trying to make their way, all hoping that it won't always be like this. And the point is this that Matthew wants to make. This is Jesus' family tree. Jesus was descended from real people at a real time. He had a family made up of normal Flawed people just like you and me. And Jesus was born into a culture, a nation, with customs and hopes and expectations. Jesus was a real man. God's answer to the world's darkness was the birth of a baby, a little man-child, a real person who ate, slept, cried, pooped, did all the things babies do. He kept his parents up late at night, he enlivened their lives. Jesus is a true man. And because Jesus is a true man, you can know that it won't always be like this because Jesus knows what it's like to have family conflict. Jesus knows what it's like to have a fever, to have nausea, to get injured. Jesus understands being laughed at by your friends, being out of breath, being disappointed. Jesus knows the frustration of corrupt bureaucracy. He knows the delight of a warm glass of milk, sweet pastries, and a hunk of meat. Jesus sang music. He walked through the woods. He read books. He gave and received presents. He knew sweet companionship. He sat by the warmth of a fire. Jesus is a true man. Therefore, he understands you and all you're going through. And the promise of Christmas, the birth of this man, is a promise that it won't always be like this. He understands it, and he came to change it. That's the first part. Jesus is a true man. Second, Jesus is the true God. Jesus is the true God. In verses 18 through 25, Matthew tells the story of Jesus' conception And then his birth is tacked on at the end, uh, right at the end of verse 25. And in this section, when Matthew tells us this Christmas story, he wants to make one thing very, very clear. And we must not miss his main point. His main point here, believe it or not, is that Joseph, the son of David, was Jesus' adoptive father. Joseph was not Jesus' birth father. Every detail Matthew tells contributes to that end. Verse 18, he says they were betrothed, an old-fashioned word that means they were engaged. They were not yet married. But back then, engagement was like a contract, and you couldn't get out of it except via divorce. But you couldn't live together. You couldn't have marital relations until you were actually married. Matthew wants us to know they were betrothed. They were not yet married. 
Verse 18, he says, before they came together. He's talking about before they were married, before they lived like married people and had children. Verse 19, Joseph was just unwilling to put her to shame. He didn't want a public lawsuit attached to her, though a scandal was inescapable. But he knew this was not his child. Verse 20, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. I'll give you a tip when you read the Bible. It's not a normal part of human experience to have angels appear to you in dreams. It wasn't any more normal back then than it is today. This is a big deal. The angel comes in a dream to assure him that this baby is from the Lord. In verse 24, Joseph obeys the angel. He marries Mary. He prepares for a son. And then in verse 25, Matthew tells us a second time that he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. This situation is extraordinary. And the point is this. Joseph is not Jesus' birth father. God, the Holy Spirit, is Jesus' birth father. That which is conceived in her, verse 20, is from the Holy Spirit. God's answer to the world's darkness is himself. God's answer is not to take us out of the world, but to bring himself into the world. And Jesus is from God. Jesus understands God. Jesus knows God because he was born of God, because he is God. How does this apply to us? Jesus understands God. We must understand that Jesus understands God. Jesus is so much like God. He is so directly connected with and related to God that he understands God perfectly because he is God. Have you ever wondered why God would let your mom die a painful death? Jesus knows. Have you ever wondered why some people have to study forever and still get a poor grade, but others can ace the test with hardly an effort? Jesus knows. Have you ever wondered why typhoons and earthquakes kill thousands of innocent people? We'll never know, but Jesus knows. Have you ever wondered what is the purpose of a human appendix? <laughs> Jesus knows. Have you ever wondered why dogs are awesome and cats are stupid? <laughs> Jesus knows. We will never understand God, but Jesus does. Because God has broken into our painful existence, we can know it won't always be like this. He will do something about it. Now, think about how these two things fit together. Nobody understands you except Jesus. And nobody understands God except Jesus. There's a clear breach between you and God, between me and God, humanity and divinity. There's a cosmic conflict between these two parties. And our only hope of restoration is if someone can bridge the gap. If someone could understand both sides and bring them together. That's why Matthew wants us to know not only that Jesus is a true man and the true God, but third, Jesus is the only Savior. All through the chapter, Matthew is concerned to show us how Jesus bridges this gap, and he weaves this idea into the very names he uses for Jesus. 
He gives him three names in this chapter. Jesus, the Christ, and Emmanuel. Let me explain these briefly. First, Emmanuel, verse 22. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he's quoting from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He translates it for us. I'm thankful. God with us. The very name that Matthew uses here for Jesus, Emmanuel, is intended to show us that God is now with us. Because Jesus was conceived and born, God has come to earth and has walked among us. God took a step toward us so he could know us. And in Jesus, we have one who was the far-off God who came near to us to be with us forever And in doing so, he promises to us that it won't always be like this. He is Emmanuel. Second, he is the Christ. This term is used four times, verses 1, 16, 17, and 18. The Christ, or Jesus Christ. Christ is a fancy Bible word. You should know that it's not Jesus' last name. It is a special Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah. Both Christ and Messiah mean anointed one. That's what most theologians will say. It means anointed one, but that definition doesn't help us much today because we don't anoint people. So what does that mean? To be anointed means to be appointed to a special office. In the Bible, it was those who were appointed to special office. It would be kings, priests, or prophets. The closest parallel today to anointing is inauguration. When we swear someone in, we inaugurate them to an office. But back then it had a special religious connotation as well. This person was inaugurated or appointed by God. And so I think the best way to understand the term Christ in modern language is simply the chosen one. The Christ, Jesus, the Christ was the chosen one the one that God chose to accomplish his task, his job of reconciling humanity to himself so that this life would not have to always be like this. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King. He had to be human to rescue humanity, but he had to be more than human to do for humanity what humanity could not do for itself, to keep God's commandments and suffer in the place of sinners. And so as the Christ, as the chosen one, he promises that the world won't always be like this. The last name that Matthew uses, the third name is simply Jesus. Jesus. In verse 21, the angel gives Joseph this name for the baby. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Verse 25, he obeys and he names this child Jesus. And the angel says the purpose of this name in verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Because Jesus is both God and man, both Emmanuel and the Christ He alone is qualified to save his people from their sins. He can clean out all the muck and repair our relationship with God. And he's the only one who can do this. And because of that, he can truly promise us that it won't always be like this. 
See, Jesus is just like a zipper. How many of you zipped zippers today? Yes. Three people zipped zippers today. <laughs> a zipper is a perfect invention because, you know, you've got these two strands of metallic teeth. Have you ever tried to put them together with your fingers without a zipper? It doesn't work. You can't do it. I defy you to try it. But this ingenious invention, this little metal tab, all you do is you zip it up, and the two pieces become one piece. Back when I was in high school in 1990, Levi's came out with the button fly. How many of you remember the button your fly campaign? It didn't last because buttons can't do what zippers can do. Only zippers can make the two into one. Jesus, the Savior, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. In closing, it's okay to feel some of the pain of Christmas. Let the pain of Christmas remind you that it won't always be like this. You can see through the Christmas season to the Savior at the center of it. Give yourself to Jesus this year, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time. Let's pray.